Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. You can support Witchlit and the serious book habit it requires at ko-fi.com slash witchlitpodcast. And you can be part of the show by sending in your own death, sex, religion, politics, money questions for our guests to Victoria at witchlitpod.com. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe and give us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help other witches find the show. Here's to never getting to the bottom of our to be red piles. Owen Dawn is the award-winning author of Paganism for Prisoners, Connecting to the Magic Within, and Paganism on Parole, Connecting to the Magic All Around. Her articles have been featured in Spirituality and Health Magazine, The View Magazine, and Llewellyn's blog. Originally from Colorado, she spent several years volunteering in the prison system, teaching spirituality to the incarcerated. She has since earned a Bachelor of Science in Integrative Healthcare from MSU Denver. She is Reiki attuned and certified as a peer specialist. She has taught creative writing workshops in three countries and is now earning her MFA in creative writing while living in London. Oh, and Dawn, welcome to Witchlit. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited to talk about your book and writing and being in London and all that good stuff. But the first question for all of our guests is why write? Oh, why not write? I mean, you know... Um, since, you know, even before the invention of the printing press, you know, writing was how messages got, um, got disseminated to people. And before writing, there was the oral tradition of storytelling. And so writing is just a continuation of that, um, oral tradition of storytelling where we, you know, sat around the campfire and learned lessons and, um, yeah, it's, it's one of the most impactful things I think a person can do with their life. I like that. Um, so you have written two books and and we had, um, as listeners know, you and I get to chat a little bit before they get to hear a conversation. Um, <laughs> and so you talked about your, I, I've read your new book. I have not read the first book, but now after reading the second book, I'm going to go back and get the first one and read it. Yay. Um, <laughs> but I just, you know, I think because of the titles and the subject matter, you know, paganism for prisoners, paganism for folks on parole. So people who have not been incarcerated or who have not, you know, been involved with the, you know, prison system. I still think this book is really valuable for them. And I kind of wanted you to talk about like why you wrote the book and like who the book is for and what that process of getting published was like, because it is, I think, unique in the space of, of kind of paganism publishing. Yeah. So there's multiple parts to this question. So um, I'll start with the the who my books are intended for. So that there's many audiences. Um, of course, in my first one, Paganism for Prisoners, people who are incarcerated are, of course, a big part of the talk, target population. But I wrote it with the idea that I wanted to give people the ability to use magic, to use paganism as a tool to grow. 
And so it, the book is is really for anybody who wants to um, dive in. And I, I think we get really hung up, um, especially in witchcraft and paganism on the tools of the trade, you know, the thame and the sword and the candles and the cloak. And I love those things personally, I do, but they're not where the magic comes from. And so I really wanted to restore it um, in both of my books to a place where like you're owning that magic. You know, you don't need to wait until you have hundreds of dollars worth of tools. You always have the ability to access your magic. And so I really wanted to help people um, find these within themselves. And then as far as how they came about, it was almost uh, divine intervention in a way. Um, so as I say in my first and I think my second book, I was incarcerated. Um, I got out. I went found a teacher, got first degree, second degree, um, you know, third degree initiations. And um, I was doing work with incarcerated women. I was teaching witchcraft to inmates, which is still one of my favorite things to say, um, because they loved it and they embraced it. And um, right, right, actually, before COVID hit, I got introduced to someone from Llewellyn who just loved the idea of a book for our incarcerated brothers and sisters and really advocated and went back to Llewellyn and was like, hey, let's get this book published. And so that's really how the process kind of came about. And the, the rest was, you know, me submitting, you know, um, um proposals for the second and now the third book i'm working on but yeah it, it all started with that moment and that introduction mm -hmm. yeah it's funny like just sometimes it's the it's that tiny spark between people that gets these things in the world so one of the things i liked about reading through the book is kind of the side notes to parole officers in this book about you know here's the things that you need to understand about you know if you have people who are you responsible for on parole? If you're their parole officer and they are practicing witchcraft and paganism, here's the things you need to know. Like their altar is sacred. You know, yes, having some kind of, you know, tools that may not be allowed to someone who's on parole or living in a halfway house. But like, did, did you, did you come to that from personal experience or from talking to people about, you know, it would be nice if my parole officer, if somebody understood and I didn't have to explain everything. I guess kind of what well, so I originally just had the one in there um um and that one was about um having an athame because I went to my own parole officer and you know I asked and I was denied you know um I was denied but I really regardless of what the tool is you know I think it's important that um the pagan faith treated with the same respect that any other faith would you wouldn't tell a christian they can't have a crucifix in their room you know and, and it's along those lines and then um you know it expanded from there and became more notes to more parole officers because um, i got a lot of messages from parole officers saying you know we don't know what to do with our pagan parolees we we know nothing about it and um so i really wanted to put the notes in there and kind of open up that dialogue i think there can be this tendency to be okay you're on parole and i'm your parole officer and we have to be enemies you know and and that's not the case you know they're there to do a job you're there to not go back to prison you know it, it, it's really not that difficult of a stretch 
but we need to open up those lines of communication and understand how to talk to one another about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I guess I think that kind of goes back to that, you know, the multiple audiences for the book. And I think as someone who has not personally dealt with the justice system in that up close and personal way, but I have worked with nonprofits and things, you know, worked with people who have had those experiences and, I think it was really helpful for me just to kind of rethink about, I've been reading a lot about, you know, prison abolition and restorative justice. And I think this is a good piece to bring into that, that, you know, people come to paganism from lots of different ways. And then we can also look at the prison system and incarceration and all that stuff through the lens of being a pagan. I mean, that, that it's a two way, I guess it's a two way mirror. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so in, in Colorado, it's lumped together Northwest European pagan, but the um, the groups that relate to that are the fastest growing faith groups in the prison system. And so we really have to look at, you know, why that is, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it, it shows no indication of slowing down, you know, so uh, and there's a lot of reasons we can go we can go into if you'd like, but um, there's this real power in the ability to access your faith mm-hmm. without needing an intermediary. And I think that's one of the things. And it's also a calling home for, for a lot of people. You know, um, there's this disconnect when you go to prison. It's you feel like you're no longer part of the human race anymore, you know, and um, you get shunned by a lot of religious groups or, you know, told, oh, yeah, no, you need to repent or you need to do this or you need to do that. And all you need to do in paganism is try to learn from those mistakes. And that's that's not a pagan law. That's a universal law. Like mm-hmm. you will repeat your lessons until you learn from them. So I think, you know, that's that's one of the things that's happening in prisons is people are feeling that disconnect and they want a way to feel connected. Mm-hmm. I, I would think connected and empowered to you, like to definitely to, to take their lives back into their own hands. And when you, like you said, you're, you're stripped of a lot, you're stripped of community, you're stripped of, you know, your autonomy and agency, all of those things. So um, and that totally makes sense to me. But I mean, one other aspect that I think has less to do with what the book is about and more about the book is it's so well written. Like it was just a joy to read. Thank um, you. Like it, you know, I think it, it's your voice is really approachable. And I mean, you're top, talking about a topic that some people would find difficult to approach. You know, like you said, people do have preconceived notions about things. And so I think, you know, you just have this really breezy, but serious i mean it's not like unserious but it is conversational kind of tone in the book and um i think that i mean that really shows in this i'm i i know and folks will know from your bio that you're currently pursuing an mfa so like what are your plans as a writer like what is your what are your big goals and what do you what do you want to do with your writing oh man um so many things um I want to, um, so I'm really attracted to writing fiction. Um, I love writing for Llewellyn. I'm going to, you know, keep writing books for Llewellyn. Um, but I also want to um, expand into fiction because that's like, there's a certain level of change that that happens in books like Paganism for Prisoners. And then there's a certain amount of change that happens from fictional books, you know, um, 
they're they become cultural they become woven into our identity and um i i want to do that so i i'm working on a couple of stories right now um both dramatic and hopefully amazing by the time i'm done but i i want to normalize pagan characters you know like there should just be a pagan character and not because they have magic powers not that you know there's anything wrong with that because you know that's a big market but like just a character who's like oh hecate i'm having a bad day today like let's talk you know and i would like to see more of that just in the world and that's how you help make paganism accessible is not by putting it like oh it's it's over here and it's these things you know it's magic spells and it's charmed and it's you know it, it is those things but it's so much more and so um i want to write books that change how people see things like incarceration i want to write books um the one i'm working on right now addresses mental health and how we look at mental health and how it relates to crime and um that's kind of a natural stepping stone from my previous books but in this case it's going to encourage readers to really challenge their thought processes. And so that's that's kind of what a small chunk of what I'm working on with my MFA. Mm -hmm. Have you found being in an MFA program as an already published author is an interesting place to be? It kind of is. Um, it doesn't mean that I haven't learned a lot because I have. Um, the biggest difference I think um, is I don't have that, oh my gosh, am I ever gonna get published anxiety? And because I don't have that, um, I feel more comfortable being able to play mm -hmm. a little bit with my own work. And um, so I think that's the big difference. Like there's, you know, some very talented writers in my program, and I hope they all get published, you know, but um, because I don't have that, that fear that my work won't be good enough, because I already have tangible proof that says, maybe I'm good at this. Um, it, you know, it takes a lot of that pressure off and I get to enjoy earning my degree. And that's that's a really awesome thing because I love to write. Um, and I mean, I I'm going to assume based on your topics that you're writing about that you are out to your fellow folks in school. Has that been an issue at all about oh. being a paganism in the midst of the MFA program? I wouldn't think so in London, <laughs> but also who knows? Yeah, no, I bring up my books uh, whenever I can. No, that's that's a half truth. Um, no, I, I don't have any shame about who I am. And uh, so it's it's not the first thing I tell people, you know, but it comes up in conversation and it's as natural as like we have Muslim students and Hindu students and Christian students. And it's just it's it hasn't been a big deal. Um, you know, and I'll have um, other students in my cohort come up and be like, oh, I'm I'm really into Buddhism. And I'm like, that's cool. You know, we can relate because there's definitely some overlap there. So, um, yeah, I haven't ever felt out of place um, for that or even nobody in my MFA has asked if I've been to prison based off my titles. But that's also something like I don't have to be embarrassed about anymore. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a big step, too, because for a long time I was. So, you know, it's. Yeah, it's very supportive in my MFA program. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I just I there's so many books written about London. I mean, before I went to London the first time, I felt like I had been there a thousand times because I'd read, I'd read so much set in London. And um, 
And there is such a mystical underbelly to London. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many books written about the magic of London. So have, what has your experience been like as a pagan in London, like coming from the United States to some place that feels so old and, you know, all of those things about London? I feel like there is a lot of magic here. Um, some of my most like so a lot of my friends um, that I have here are from London and they always they're like, wow, you get so excited about things like the fog. The first time I saw London fog, I was literally walking between two worlds. Like I could have walked into a fairy world just then. Um, I could have you know, stepped over the threshold into Atlantis. You know, there's all these. Um, and then the buildings like history. I'm such a huge history buff. Like I love European history. I can talk about it for weeks and months and, you know, um, and so I've been to all the museums and, you know, I'm always finding new places and and the temple of Mithras is here. And, you know, Mithras is, is a pre-Christian deity, you know, who had a big following and it's, and even the foxes here, you know, like seeing there's a mama fox and a baby fox who live like right outside my window. And so like these things like this, this is, I'm always telling people magic is everywhere. You know, it's not just in that sacred well, it's there too, but it's everywhere. You know, sunrise and sunset are magical times. And, you know, being on the Thames when the sun sets, that's magic too. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been a magical, a mystical experience over here. Yeah. I know. I'm, I, I'm having travel envy right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we talked before, London is one of my favorite places to travel. And I feel like I could spend a life there and still not see everything I want to see. Like it feels like it changes every time you walk around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, awesome. Well, cool. So you talked about the next book you're working on and, and kind of what's like, so what does like getting started on a book look like for you, especially in the middle of an MFA program? Cause that is a lot of work itself. So what is like yeah. trying to write a book for publication and being in an MFA program at the same time? Well, so it means I'm trying to write two books for publication. That's <laughs> what that means. Um, but it kind of starts, it starts with an idea. And um, I know a lot of people love to make like plots and they love and they plot everything out and, you know, that works for them. But I, um, I find, especially with the books that I write for Llewellyn, I sit down and I clear my head and I take a few deep breaths and I just, I just start jotting notes, you know, I'm like, okay, what would I maybe like to see? And then I'll pick a section and I'll expand on that. And then I'll be like, okay, I like this section. Does it need more? And um, it, the book of spells I'm working on right now has actually taken on like a whole life of its own. Um, there's going to be 111 of them in there. Oh, wow. And yeah. So at one point I was, you know, listening to the sounds of the planets on NASA uh, on their YouTube channel. And I was like, oh, you know, this is great. We're going to, you know, incorporate these into spells. And so it's about taking that inspiration. And I, I found the same thing applies to my fiction books, too, because I start with this idea. And I start and I, I I type down the ideas that I have and just going through, okay, this works and this doesn't. And sometimes I write the chapters out of order and then, you know, I piece them together later and it's this moving process. It's, it's never stagnant. It's not like, okay, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's like, okay, and today we're going to focus on this and then we're going to focus on this and this didn't work. And the whole time I have to really remember 
what I'm trying to achieve. You know, with with my book of spells, I, I want to bring some of the principles from paganism for prisoners and paganism on parole to um, my spell books. So they're all about empowerment and personal growth and archetypes and these kinds of things, you know, versus, you know, job spell 101, you know. And so I having that in my head really helps me kind of formulate where it's going to go. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think about in, in reading Paganism and Pearl, I mean, it seems like it. I don't think that someone who has been practicing wouldn't get anything out of it, but it seems like it's geared more towards somebody who either is newly discovering paganism as they leave incarceration or they discovered it while they were incarcerated. So, like, what do you, with that experience, or how do you think that would be different for someone who's in that situation who is already a pagan and they kind of walk into that? you know, being incarcerated yeah. or, or dealing with that. Like, it seems well, like there, there's a different challenge there to me, I guess. Yeah, no, that that's a good question. Um, and I, I was pagan when I went to prison. I already like worked with the gods, but it was very surface level for me. Um, you know, it was about wearing black and pentagram jewelry and like, you know, the, the big, st- like the big pins, you know, with the sayings on them, granddaughters of the witches, you couldn't burn. And, you know, and that's where it stopped, you know? And so even if somebody's already pagan, even if it's not just surface level, there's always an opportunity to deepen your spiritual connection. And, and that's what I think uh, that the main difference is gonna be is where you're starting and how deep you're gonna go. And that's gonna be more of a personal thing too. Like if if you're new, you don't even know how deep you can go because all you can see is the surface of the lake. And so you start there. But if you've already waded out, you know it gets deeper and it's up to you how far you go. Mm-hmm. I like that image too of the lake. That's great. Um, did you find like in writing the books, like kind of laying those out and going through the process of writing that, did your practice change or did you have things come up for you in writing the books? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I have I have kind of a varied background. I've got, you know, a little bit of mental health. My undergrad is in integrative health care, which is, you know, allopathic and holistic where they meet. And so um, incorporating these ideas and I was getting my undergrad. Well, I wrote paganism on parole. And so I would um, I was like, oh, man, you know, that really fits with you know the spiritual practice and so i would weave them in and it like short answer is my practice is always changing and always growing it it's never it never looks the same twice um that's one of the best things about paganism is it it can change and grow with you and um but yeah every time i write a book it it shapes me in in different ways Do you think what what do you think was the biggest thing that came out of writing Paganism on Pearl and working on that book? I think the mental health aspect, mm-hmm. um, you know, devoting a whole chapter to that made me really have to look at my mental health, um, you know, coming from most people who are incarcerated have backgrounds that are not so nice. And, you know, really having to look at dealing with that and, you know, where was I comfortable being and where did I want to be? And that was one of the biggest ones um, for me. And then, you know, there's other stuff like the, um, 
I talk more about it in Paganism for Prisoners, but the Claire senses, Claire audience, Claire sentience, Claire, you know, those exercises that I come up with, I try those out first before mm -hmm. I put them in the book. And so those are always going to have an effect too. But yeah, um, looking at emotional and mental, because there are two different chapters in the book. Mm -hmm. um, those those were so huge for me because I really wanted to put those into practice, you know, yeah. practice what you preach kind of thing. Yeah. And it was one of the things that really stood out to me reading it is just like how you, that the book addresses all of those things, because I think it's real easy to go, you know, am I physically good? Am I mentally good? And not talk about emotional health and your spiritual health in those kind of things. And especially like, like you said, you know, if your background is not great, if you've got a trauma background or, I mean, just being incarcerated is a trauma in and of itself. You yeah. Know? So there's, just dealing with kind of the fallout of those kind of things to coming out of prison or, and I was just like, yeah, this, it just seemed very, um, like I was just thinking of, of imagine coming to this book as someone who really needed that space and that you, you made such a good landing spot for them to really look at all of these things. So I'm glad that you also got something out of it. Cause I feel like I got something out of it reading it too. And <laughs> yeah, so it was that just nice that, that as a writer, like I always, you know, I can't remember like source amnesia, um, you know, no surprises in the writer, no surprises in the reader. Like, you know, mm. your, your experience directly translates on the page to some extent. So I think that's, it's always just nice to hear when writers have those experiences too. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that makes it, um, yeah, the, you said it perfectly. You know, it, it translates, you know, what we're going through um, and having that that clear headspace when we write so that we can, because I, I said this a lot when my first book came out, like I typed it up, but really like a lot of it came from some other place. You know, I was sitting there and I got to be the conduit. And that's that's a really important thing to remember because I'm far from perfect, you know, and there's a lot of things in the book. I'm like, yes, no, this is this is amazing. And this is what should happen. And most days I get it, you know, and then but we all have days that we don't. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all a work in progress, right? And Absolutely. At least that's the hope that we're always a work in progress. Um, yeah. And I, no, but I think that it, I, you know. I don't know that I've talked about this much with folks on the show, but like the, like the vulnerability of writing, like I've, it, it's not just like you're putting your baby out in the world and will people like it. It's also like opening up to writing and letting yourself yeah. talk about those things. Like, you know, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, I think in fiction, it's even more true because people are always going to, even though it is a fictionalized story, they know it came out of your head. So they're going to assume things based on that or, or, you know, have questions about, you know, what is your experience with this? Which I always, you know, kind of laugh as someone who writes a little bit of horror into their fantasy. It's like, no, I don't really fantasize about murdering people. It just happens <laughs> in the box. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love horror. But some of my work is like horror gothic. Yeah, I would not say mine is, but there are definitely elements thrown in there. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, but yeah. that's, that's actually healthy to be able to explore the dark side of humanity. Like I, I'm fond of saying that, you know, the light is great, but you can't really see the light unless you've walked through darkness. So mm -hmm. if you don't walk through it sometimes and entertain those ideas in your head, you know, not physically going out, but at least like entertaining them, how much do you really know about yourself? Yeah. How much can you know about yourself? Yeah, you got to look under the furniture sometimes. 
<laughs> yeah. So the dusty, dusty cobwebby corners can teach you a lot about yourself. <laughs> um, they they yeah. can. I like that. Yeah. I am looking forward to reading your fiction. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so like, what, what do you feel like comes next for you? Like obviously finishing MFA program and like, what, what do you see your trajectory as a writer? Like how, how are things going? Like what, what's your five-year plan? Owen? <laughs> Oh, my five-year plan. Oh, my goodness. Um, Not really. I mean, I've made a plan of. through to Tuesday, and that's about as far as I've gotten. Hey, you're, you're ahead of me. I think I have a <laughs> Sunday planned. So. so we're both doing good. I mean, like, that's, it's beyond tomorrow. So yeah. um, I want to write books and speak. And if anybody's listening who's like a producer, I would love to host like a pagan travel show where I'm like, oh, and look here's the well of Briad and like talk about the history like I would love to do that mm -hmm. um it's it, it's on one of my uh one of my goals list but I you know the path I'm on I'm just gonna stay the course yeah. and you know finish my MFA and um finish book I'm working on now for Llewellyn and finish my fiction book and just kind of see what happens because at this point I don't really see myself ever going back to like, oh, I'm going to go work retail again or, you know, I'm going to go. Um, I mean, oh, sorry about that. Uh, most writers need um, most writers need to have like a secondary job, but I don't ever see myself, you know, writing part time while I work full time. It's just I'm going to do the next right thing and be on more podcasts and, you know, um, encourage my book to get out there and oh my gosh i know you guys can't see this but she has the most beautiful orange cat on her lap big big cat fan yeah he, he is our podcast he's also uh 15 and his <laughs> health is not good so he um he gets babied Aww, when he wants it thing. let's put it that way so um, i bet yeah when he was sitting here very quietly mewing like mom picked me up um <laughs> but yeah no i think that's you know, it's just to, to me that that balance of like how to figure out how to write as a life and like what you do. Like I'm, I'm very lucky in that. I mean, I do have like a, a part-time job, um, remotely with a nonprofit. So I do still make a little money on the side from that, which is more than I make from writing. Let's be really honest. Um, but, true. um, you know, my husband pays the bills. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and privileged to be in that position, but yeah, it's, it's difficult because, you know, not only do you have to like figure out how to eat and whatever that is, but depending on what that job is that feeds you, if it's not writing, like it can't take away from the writing. Like right. you don't want it to be the thing that like when you, when you finish that at the end of the day, you're too tired to write. So I think it's a hard, exactly. it's a hard balance to strike. Yeah. And I think a lot of people try and do it the other way. And, and I get that because we're like, there's this fear of not having money, you know, and there's this fear of not having a roof over your head and food. And, you know, those are legitimate fears, you know, um, sometimes though, for some people out there, stretch your wings and let the wind catch you and like, trust that it'll work. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what my process has been. And so far it's going good. You know, it's getting a little better all the time. And so, yeah, that's that's where I'm going to keep going with that. And we'll see where I end up in five years. I plan to still be in London. Um, 
Right. Or if not London, you know, somewhere else we're in the UK, because I really mm-hmm. like it here. It, it rains and it doesn't rain a lot in Colorado. So I'm, yeah. <laughs> you know, and. Yeah, I, a lot of people I um, complain about the weather and I've, you know, traveled in the UK and I've lived in the Pacific Northwest. And I was like, no, that's the weather I love. <laughs> Oh, me too. Yeah. It's like, I like rainy gray days. I mean, the (laughs) sunshine is beautiful and and I will take it when we get it, but um, I will take a overcast day. I I love it. Yeah. Especially when it's just, you know, that soothing rain and at nighttime and it's it's quite magical. Yeah. And great riding weather. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Um, So I, you, you mentioned your a desire for a pagan travel show. And I have yes. to say that I have a desire to watch one. So <laughs> I, I just that? feel like it's a missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And especially so many people be- becoming pagan and like, or, you know, they were born pagan and are just discovering it depending on your outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, just, you know, going to pagan places all over the world and, and talking about it like that. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. that would be so amazing. Like even the, um, you know, back to the Neolithic caves, you know, the first pagan sites where they found bones and animal offerings and, and talking about that. And mm-hmm. I just, yeah, yeah the definitely. Closest, the closest thing I've seen, Damien Eccles is doing a YouTube show about, I think there's two episodes. The first one is New Orleans where he lives. And then the other one is New York. Okay. And it is just kind of these walks around like places he knows and, you know, just kind of like locations and um, like venues and things like that to talk about. And that's the closest thing I've ever seen. And it's on YouTube and I don't think it's getting, you know, hasn't gotten the traction yet that it deserves. So people go watch, but um, yeah, (laughs) I think there's, you know, I think there's space for that. And I've always said, you know, like the other thing is I think about is that, you know, there's so many curated shows about, you know, like top 10 travel destinations for blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, what are the top 10, like pilgrimages for pagan people? Like, what are those? You know, let's, let's Absolutely. talk about that. So yeah, no, let's put that out in the universe and make that happen for you. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. And you could even do it like just by country, you know, in Europe, there's just hundreds of sites mm-hmm. that people don't even know about. Yeah. One of the, um, so we, you talked about the Mithras, the Mithraeum in London. So yeah, yeah I lived in Slovenia in former Yugoslavia for people who don't know where Slovenia is um, for a year and a half when I was in college and um, have traveled back several times since then. And they also have, I think there's three Mithraeums in like the Eastern part of the country. And I have never actually gotten to go in them. Like every time I've been there, they've been closed for the season. (laughs) So I've never gotten to see them. I've seen, you know, photographs of things and I've been to the museum, but I haven't been actually in the Mithraeum. And um, yeah, that's one of the things I'd really like to check out. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Every country has something and it'd be really interesting to get a rundown of that. Like, I mean, you know, with the death of witch fox, I feel like we don't even have like a like a directory of like witchy stores anymore. Like there's, we just need kind of this like compilation of, you know, places and things that are important to us. So like, Hey, we're still here. Yeah. We're not going anywhere. Yes. Yeah. I agree. So what, so, so far in London, since we're on the topic of traveling and being places, (laughs) so what has been like, aside from the fog, like what is your most magical place in London for you? 
Mm. And that's tough. Um, I absolutely love being by the Thames. Um, Sometimes I will just start at um, like the Tower of London and I'll just cross um, Tower Bridge and I'll walk and I'll cross a bridge and I'll walk and I'll cross a bridge and I'll walk and I'll cross a bridge. And you can cover several miles like that and just listening to the water. And um, yeah, that's definitely it's definitely one of my most magical moments especially since I can just go see it whenever I want, mm -hmm. you know, it's a bus right away. And, um, I love that. And yeah, the fog was very magical. Oh, my first, okay. My very first London rain, because I, I came to London in 2021 for a visit and it did not rain the whole nine days I was here. And I was so <laughs> sad because I wanted a London rain. I was like, where's my London rain? And so I moved out here and there was no rain. There was no rain. There was no rain. I took an open top bus tour. That's when I got my first London rain and it's <laughs> pouring down. And of course I'm sitting on the top because, you know, I just wanted to sit on the top and that's where you get the good views and it started raining and everybody's pulling out their umbrellas and going inside. And I just got to stay out there in the rain. It's like soaked, like so drenched by the time I was done, but it was kind of like the, okay, welcome to London. And <laughs> so that's, that's one of my most magical moments that yeah. I've been here. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, um, I, when I lived in, um, the Pacific Northwest, I'd moved back to Tennessee and a friend went out with me to help me kind of take care of some last moving things. We flew out together and, you know, there had been this whole conversation about, oh, it rains all the time, blah, blah, blah. And we were there like four days and it was absolutely stunningly beautiful, sunny the whole four days. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know, people just keep this a secret. So people don't move here. <laughs> it's, it's like, we just tell people it's miserable, rainy, cold all the time. But, you know, like when it's beautiful, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful and you can see forever. And, you know, but yeah, it does rain a lot, but it doesn't actually rain all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, the last time I was in London was in it was in November and it was right after the Olympics, so it's been a while. And um, we rode, we did the London Eye one day, and we bought tickets that you could just go whenever you didn't have to have like a certain time. And so we waited until it was really sunny and rode, and you could see for miles and miles and miles from the top. And it was just like this. Like, I think when you're on the ground in London, because it's human scale, it's not like New York where you're just walking through canyons of buildings. Like everything in London feels like human scale to me compared to like cities like yeah. New York. And to see how big London actually is, like to really be at the top of that observation and just look out at the river and how far back it goes and how and it's just city as far as you can see is just kind of amazing. Yeah. I think I'm going to, um, yeah, I haven't been on the eye yet, so I've been waiting for the right time, but mm -hmm. yeah, now I really want to go. Yeah. No, I, I do recommend, I mean, it is a touristy thing to do, obviously, but it was, you know, to me, it was just like, it is obviously the highest point in London when you're at the top and, you know, yeah. it's, it was just, it was magical. I mean, maybe overused word, but also true. It was just, it was very cool to, to have that experience. And then also just, yeah, like there's so many parts of London. And like I said, I've just visited, you know, two or three times. So I haven't really gotten to 
I haven't lived there. I haven't lived with London every day. So I think that would, I don't know, I'm fascinated by that experience, being able to do that, <laughs> especially as an outsider. Like I, I do, it's funny to me that your London friends were like, you get so excited. And I was like, yeah, because I don't, I haven't spent my life here yet. So. Yeah, exactly. For the first couple of weeks, I was fascinated by people's footwear. <laughs> Nobody wears heels. Nobody. And like in Colorado, people wear heels because you get in your car and you drive places. And like here, everybody's walking around. It's flats. Like people have like dress tennis shoes. I, I found it fascinating for like weeks. You know, I was just, uh, I almost wrote a whole essay about the shoes of London <laughs> that I had seen, you know? And yeah, it was, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. And I, even, oh no, go ahead. Yeah. Even outside of London, um, I got, I drove in London because when you move here your license is good for a year and um, so I drove to Southend and that's a very ethereal place when the water goes out at night and it's just muddy and yeah it's mm -hmm. beautiful though what was so that was the first time you had driven on the uh, other side of the road we'll say we'll not say the right side or the proper side we'll say the <laughs> other side of the road the other side of the road and the other side of the car. Yes. So, you know, so shifting with my left hand, but, it, you know, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, was it so hard? It's not that different. It's really, especially if you've been driving, like you've been driving in the U.S. for, well, a really long time. <laughs> I'm older than I look. Um, so a couple decades I've been driving in the U.S., you know, so it's um, it's a little scary at first, but it's not that bad until you hit the roundabouts. Yeah, yeah, roundabouts. Yeah. Are, they, here they make sense to me, but I think in my mind, driving on the left, they make less sense to me for some reason, which doesn't, I mean, there's no reason why they're different, but there is something about how my brain works that going around the other way is weird. So, yeah, yeah, it, it is a little bit. Yeah. Cool. I don't know, like, um, well, I, one of the great things I think about being able to spend any amount of time in Europe you know, you know, if you're there permanently or if you get to spend an extended amount of time there is that it's so much easier to go to other places. Yes. While you're there, like, you know, for here, it's like if you plan a trip to France, you're probably only going to get to France because it's expensive to travel between cities and all that kind of stuff. But winter there, like a weekend trip could be to France. <laughs> so. It's funny you mentioned that I was actually in Nice two weeks ago. So in Spain and Monaco and Italy and th mm -hmm. yeah, they're all just like right there for less than a plane ticket in the U.S. So yeah, oh, that's exciting. I'm excited for all your adventures uh, in yeah, writing I, and in living in London and traveling. All, all thank you. Stuff. Yeah. Um. So, like I said, I want to be mindful of your time, but um, yeah. before we get to the Last, our game of chance question at the end. I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell folks like what's coming up for you. If you've got anything coming, this will air in April. And like, just think about like what's coming up for you. Are you going to be at places or how they can get in touch with you or find your work? Um, so they can find me. I'm on social media um, on Instagram, Awen Dawn, spelled just like my name, A W Y N D A W N. Um, same thing with Twitter, although Instagram, um, yeah, I can't focus on all social media accounts at all times. So mm -hmm. it's primarily Instagram, a little bit of Facebook, um, 
Alwyn Dawn official on Facebook, um, alwyndawn.com. Um, I am open to bookings, um, to um, speaking and, you know, podcast events and all that. And people can reach out to um, my publicist, uh, Marcus with a K, Marcus I at Llewellyn.com um, to kind of uh, request interviews and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, as far as that, I'm hoping to be up for a second writing award in April. And yeah, fingers crossed for that. Yeah. And yeah, we'll see. That's uh, that's about as far as I've got. But I do, I make it a regular habit to um, to post on my Instagram stuff that's coming up and to post on my Facebook stuff that's coming up. So follow me there and I do my best to keep that updated. Yeah, and that's good. And um. You, you mentioned the uh, award season coming up and um, it is mentioned in your bio, but you did win a cover award for um, paganism for prisoners. I did. Yes. And that's, um, I never dreamed that I would win a writing award. Um, you know, when I wrote the book, I was like, well, I just hope one person finds it helpful, which I know they have. Cause I got my first piece of fan mail a few oh, months ago and that's I, awesome. Oh, oh. Yeah, somebody who is incarcerated. Oh, you know, and the heart goes out. But um, yeah, I won the 2022 Cover Gold Award for the social justice category. So um, I'm hoping that my second book will be nominated as well. Um, so voting for that starts in a few months. Even if I'm not in there, people should vote. Lots of great authors, mm -hmm. lots of great books and music and stuff like that. And, you know, everybody can vote on that. So really encourage people um, to go check that out and cast yeah. their votes. And I'll and try to remember to put a note with the show notes with your contact stuff. I'll put a note or link for cover in there too, because I think... okay. I think it's not something everybody knows about, but it is really like they really do. It is the the award ceremony for the kind of niche, you know, world we write and inhabit. <laughs> so yeah, unless they want to give me like a Pulitzer or a Nobel Prize for paganism for prisoners, which I think maybe they should consider. But until we get to that point, you know, yeah. um, cover covers an incredible award to win. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I wouldn't say no to a Pulitzer. No. I can't I, me. I wouldn't, you know, uh, I guess, I guess I could take one. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So I, uh, our game of chance basically is um, the, you know, the initial thing was that it was things we're not supposed to talk about or in polite company, um, oh, which kind of the so whole podcast. Yeah. That the, you know, that's kind of why I want to have podcast, you know, just to be able to talk about stuff people don't necessarily talk about. So I will roll a die and depending on what I get, you'll get a question about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. And if I roll a six, okay. you can pick which one you want. So. Okay. And they are kind of related to your work or writing. I mean, I try not to just like blindside people, but five money five. Ooh, okay. Yes. Interesting. Um, so I think, you know, one of the topics that comes up again and again on writer with writers on the show is that a lot of us do not write for money. Um, right. Are we, are we do not, our living is not made writing. Um, there are obviously writers who make a living. Um, but what do you think, like having been through the process of publishing industry, what do you think your biggest beef in the publishing industry is around like money and how writers are paid and or do you have one like what do you think what could be better or what do you think is not working 
Oh, um, Anna, that's a tough question. I like something that was new to me that I didn't know is that I could negotiate my contract. Like I had no idea when I got my first contract and I actually kind of found out accidentally because I became, you know, a member of the society of authors here in the UK and they're like, Oh, we offer free contract con contract review. And I'm like, oh, we can re review my contract. And so like, I had no idea, like you just get an offer and you're mm -hmm. like so excited to get published. You're like, yes, I will take this offer. And, um, I think Llewellyn's offer is probably fair. I haven't compared it to other industries, so I don't know, but I'm going to make that assumption because they um, they tend to be an ethical uh, publisher. But I didn't know that I and authors don't talk about this kind of thing with each other. We're not like, oh, what percentage of sales are you getting? Mm -hmm. You know, did you get um, um, not so much about what our royalty statements look like, but did you get um, Oh, what's it called? That initial amount. Oh, an advance. Um, yeah. You know, did you get an advance? What did your advance look like? How do you market? How do you, um, you, do you charge for things like podcast interviews or public appearances? Like we don't have these dialogues. And I think that makes it really hard for the new author who doesn't have connections to figure all this stuff out, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, like, and if I do a workshop, what should I charge? I have no idea. And so, you know, and you can Google this stuff. And unfortunately, when you Google the stuff, a lot of the stuff is written by people who haven't actually traditionally published. They're making an educated guess. They're like, oh, and the numbers range between like $5 and 50,000. You know, you're like, that's quite not a helpful. big range. And <laughs> it's not helpful at yeah. all. And so my biggest qualm is that so many of these things are in the dark. And, you know, I, I would like there to be like a FAQ, like, hey, congratulations, we're publishing your book. Here's some questions that you don't even know you should ask yeah. about contracts and, um, you know, insurance and taxes and, you know, so much stuff because you essentially work for yourself when you're when you're a writer and so there's yeah. you know there's taxable income and like if i buy a laptop can i take that off on my taxes and like all these questions we don't know because nobody has a conversation about yeah. them i mean yeah. talk about something we're not supposed to talk about i mean writers you're right writers traditionally don't talk about their advances they don't talk about what their royalty split is they don't talk about those things and i think you know one of the because we my husband and i started a small publishing company we started initially because I got the rights back to my books and we wanted to publish them ourselves. And then we're like, but we want to do this for other people too. And that was kind of our first thing is we want to be absolutely transparent. And we want to make sure that the people writing the book are the people who are making the majority of the money. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's like shrouded in mystery. And it's almost like, I mean, I've heard writers talk about like, it's almost like if you have the gall to ask, then maybe you don't deserve to be published. And I'm like, that's garbage. <laughs> that is garbage. That's absolute garbage. Like it is a contract like anything else. You should be able to negotiate, but it's expensive to get a lawyer. It's expensive sometimes if you don't belong to a, a writer's guild or society to have somebody look at your contract. If a lawyer is going to charge you a thousand dollars at the gate, that may be, if you don't get an advance, that could be your royalties for a year. Like, or more. Know, yeah. <laughs> so you spent, you spent everything you would have made just getting a lawyer to look at the contract. And people don't tell you that you can keep the rights to things mm -hmm. that you can keep the rights to your audiobook and do what you want with it. You know, that, that you just don't, 
you weren't told those kind of things. So I think it's, it is important. And I do wish we had like, I don't know, like I think authors guilds and writer societies, and I really recommend people who, you know, whether you're self-published or indie published or publishing with a traditional publisher, it's good to have other writers that will talk to you about those things and kind of, and look at, you know, yeah, look at your contract and see, you know, what, what's in there. Do you agree with it? <laughs> Is this what you really want? And yeah, I think, I, I feel like it's, uh, the pandemic has telescoped time in a re- weird way. But I want to say it was like a year, <laughs> yeah. year and a half, two years ago when there was the whole thing on Twitter about writers publishing what they had been paid advances, specifically talking about how underpaid black writers were compared to other writers in genre fiction. And, you know, a lot of people said, yeah, you know, I didn't get an advance at all, or I got like 2000 bucks. And this other person who's writing, you know, who's the first time author got like 45,000, you know, like it. So I think it's interesting. And, you know, the more we talk about those things, the less they can hide from us, I think as writers. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's weird that I got the money one. I was like, come on, sex question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I can ask you the sex question because this is a game with no rules. Um, Oh my gosh. Okay. Let's do the sex question. So you kind of bring up in the book um, that love and sex magic done to change another's will to be attracted to you or want to be with you generally goes awry. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. what would you say to someone who's coming out of you know, the isolation of incarceration, who wants to do magic for love and companionship, like what would be the first thing you would recommend to them? That they do a spell to love themselves. That's that's the type of, lo- when you get out, stop going for the purse first, the first person you meet and like forming a relationship and building your identity and your life around that, but just stop it. Just stop, 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 stop. Even if you haven't been, in, stop it. Um, do love you can always do like a you know what i want to learn to love myself more i'm going to do that spell you can do that spell all day long without without consequences you know without influencing anybody else's will um you can do um i i believe i have a friendship spell in there because friendships are more important than romantic love when you get out you need people who are going to be like uh you know maybe you shouldn't take that job where they're going to work you 90 hours a week and not pay you maybe you shouldn't do that friends do that mm-hmm. you know and those are the more important kinds of love to focus on like we we tend to think oh love that's you know um significant other it's it's spouse it's partner that's what it is but there's there's you know love between family there's love between friends there's loving yourself there's loving your community there's the love that we have for the planet earth that we're on these are all things that should be people's focus more than oh i'm you know i've been out of prison for three months i think i'm gonna die alone because i haven't found that perfect person stop it just just stop you know um and like, I've been single for a long time. I love being single. Oh my God. I look <laughs> at all my friends who have like kids and, you know, they're like, oh, well, yeah, my, my husband, you know, doesn't think I should spend this money. I'm like, okay, well, I don't have to answer to anybody. So I'm going to go buy my ticket, you know? And there's, there's this beauty and this freedom in eating dinner by yourself on the Mediterranean, you know? And being okay with that. And so that's that's where people 
need to focus on is that being okay with self. Once you get to that point, then you can work on relationships, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's a natural magic. If you're attractive to yourself, if you're like, man, you know, I'm a good person, you know, other people are naturally going to be attracted. So you don't even have to cast a spell. Yeah. I liked what you said about soulmates because it's always been a hobby horse of mine that, you know, people have this idea that soulmates are the person you're supposed to spend your entire life with. And I was like, yeah, I've never believed that. <laughs> so, no. I like that you bring it up in the book because I'm like, yeah, a soulmate could just be someone that you have a lesson to learn with. And you, like you said, you it could just be they're in your life very briefly just to make that contact about that thing. I mean, it could be someone you spend your life with, but it could be your mom. <laughs> you know, it could be. It could be. You know, yeah. It's not necessarily, um, you know, a romantic partner. And I don't like the idea that like, if you don't have a soulmate, you're not a complete person. Like who is coming up with this, this crap? Like, like you are complete on your own. And if you happen to find somebody who is also complete on their own and you guys decide that, you know, vibrationally you mesh and that's awesome. And you keep it for as long as it works. And then when it doesn't work anymore, you part ways like this forever and ever and ever. It's such a toxic idea. That's why women stay with like, well, one of the reasons, you know, women stay, you know, toxic relationships or, you know, there's an increase as somebody who dates people, there is an increase in like needy codependent, like people in the world because everyone's, oh, I need that person to complete me. And we're all, you're fine like do some work on yourself you know work with some archetypes and some shadow work you know be a little better person than you were yesterday but you don't need somebody to complete you and i really wish we would stop telling people that and like just reframing Mm -hmm. it oh it's not a soulmate it's a i forget what the new one is but it's essentially a repackaged soulmate like Mm -hmm. a twin flame your twin flame yes like stop just it's And well, like and I when think you get an, down to it, we're all just balls of energy anyway. Yeah. And I think it's yeah, important. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's important not just if you're single, but also if you're already in a relationship to remember that you are a complete person by yourself, even if you're in a relationship. I mean, yes. my husband and I have had this conversation, like, you know, we, we unfortunately have a lot of our friends and acquaintances relationships over the pandemic crashed and burned or just ended for other reasons, you know, it, it put a lot of pressure on relationships. Right. So you know, and we, we have had this ongoing conversation in our relationship that I love you and I love being with you and I choose to be with you every day. And if you left, I would be really sad, but I'm still a human and a person and I would still be me, you know, with or without you in my life. I still have to be a person by myself. I still have to grow and change and and do those things. And I think it's important to for, not forget that if you're already in a relationship, even if you think you're in a healthy relationship, that you know, yes, your lives are intertwined because that's what happens when you spend years and years with someone. But if for some reason they are no longer entwined, you don't stop being a person by yourself. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I was just really glad you said that in the book because it is personal, <laughs> you know, like I said, it's personal hobby horse of mine that it's just, yeah, it's, I, I think, I don't know, I always call it, you know, like Disney, Disney has a lot of explaining to do. That's not, that's right. not how romance and love work. That's not how it works. Yeah. And I agree oh, that, I, you know, I, friendships are, friendships are your ride or die. Honestly. I mean, I, I've had friends a lot longer than I've had any relationship with a significant other. That's so. true. Yeah. 
And the, and those friendships are a lot harder to find. Like you can always find somebody who's willing to sleep with you. Who's you know, always, always. But somebody who's like willing to tell you the truth or, you know, about uncomfortable topics or, you know, somebody who will just sit there when you're crying and have a bad day and like, you know, oh, let's go have ice cream. You're like, that's that's so much. It's so precious. Yeah, you can actually ask a friend if you look okay in this outfit and they will be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> they will not worry about repercussions <laughs> same way you that your like, partner oh, might yeah that is not the color you should be wearing sweetheart yeah that's yeah, yeah no i mean and, i mean that's a small thing but it's big things too like i think you know and they also i think when you have really long-term friends and it is really like they know who you used to be and they know who you are now and they, they love you anyway. Changed and grown, <laughs> and they've made space in their relationship with you for you to change and grow like that. Like long-term relationships, I think. Like you're, you're right. I think in many ways they're a lot healthier because you don't have that added pressure of like romance and sex to really see a whole person in a friendship that you you may not in a in a romantic relationship. Yeah, definitely. And cat and dog relationships are important too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Like when, you know, Ryan came and jumped up earlier, like, yeah, I think I've already told my husband, like, we know he's not doing well. It's like, just accept that I'm going to have to take a week vacation to cry unconsolably when this cat makes his passage, but hopefully we'll get to keep him for a while longer, but things are, things are kind of, he's, he's just getting old and he's not got great health. He's not going to be a 25 year old cat. We've just kind of accepted that. So it's hard. It's hard to let them go. Yeah. They um for that's tiny, that's... tiny creatures, they make really big holes in your life when they leave. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. I had a, a hamster. Loved this hamster. And hamsters have like a two-year lifespan. But like mm-hmm. I I was I was devastated when this hamster passed away. And like, yeah. you know, took him up to the mountain and did a ceremony and like <laughs> yeah, because you know, little little hearts with a lot of love yeah yeah i am i've always admired people who can can have pets that have such short lifespans because i think i would just be devastated all the time (laughs) so um cat cats and dogs that's about that's about the longevity window for me emotionally i can handle (laughs) so see you need like a dragon because they live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years yeah Yeah. well i also think about people who have parrots that you know they basically have to (laughs) figure out who the parrot will go to when they die yeah yeah it's like you have to think about you have to think about those things but oh i feel like we could talk about things forever and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and definitely when you get your next book or you know whether that be the fiction book or the new llewellyn book Let's do this again and and talk about Absolutely. Like, how are things progressing and more magical things about London. So okay, well, no, I'm sure I'll have plenty. I think you said I've I've been to so many places and I don't feel like I've seen like a tenth of it. It's yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I, I'm convinced that London is a shapeshifter anyway. So I think even if you mm. thought you had seen it all, you haven't. <gasps> oh, yeah. No, that's yeah. That feels true. <laughs> I feel like that's accurate. Yeah. 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 One street over is completely different. You're like, what? Where was the? Yeah. Yep. 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 Awesome. Well, let's talk soon. And thank you again for being on the show and for putting these great, important books out in the world. 
Oh, thank you so much. It's it's been a pleasure. Witch Lit is a production of Thousand Volt Press. Our intro music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew Kay, and our outro music is Voices by Alexander Shinekar. Transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com, and you can follow us on Instagram at witchlitpod. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy.